Morning, everyone. It's good to see you, to be with you, to worship with you. Uh, I'd like you invite to invite you, if you have a Bible, to take it and to turn right away to uh, Matthew chapter 5, or you can take one of the chair Bibles that should be close by, and uh, the page number will be on the screen. It's uh, week two, as uh, uh, Laura mentioned at the beginning of Sermon on the Mount, and of course we're starting with the Beatitudes, this section of 10 or 12 verses, the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, and This morning, I'd like to invite some participation as we get going. I'm going to say a phrase, and then if it sounds like something you've heard a lot in your life, just put up your hand. Are you ready? Here we go. Whenever God closes a door, he opens a window. That's a lot. Okay. And I'm not talking about like in sarcastic ways or ironic ways, so still same? Okay. Um, God never gives us more than we can handle. Just heard that one. A good number. God needed another little angel. Okay, so, oh, still, there's some. All things work together for good. I'm sure God has a purpose in all this. Yeah, as I suspected, I thought the third one would trail off a little bit. Good. Um, Why is it that sometimes when we have no clue what to say, we end up saying so many things? (laughs) We, We say things that we've heard other people say, things that have been said to us, even if they weren't very helpful. We just keep saying them. We say things because it seems better than saying nothing. Even if there's really nothing to say, we say things because we want to do something even when there isn't much we can do. In my experience, there isn't much distance between these sorts of platitudes and certain strands of faith. You know the ones I'm talking about? The kinds of faith that claim God definitely wants us all to be rich. The strands of faith that we're entitled to every material thing our hearts desire forms a spirituality that suggests that what you put out is precisely what you get back. A sort of blame the victim mentality where responsibility for any kind of pain, discomfort, or suffering is placed on the the least, the little, the last, and the worst for not sending out enough good energy into the universe. Apostle Paul, for one, would not approve. He said this, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. There's this other Paul who said it this way, blessed are the sat upon, spat upon, ratted on. This is the same kind of upside down, counterintuitive, revolutionary, alternative wisdom Jesus preaches in the Beatitudes. This list of blessings that God gives to those for whom there's no reason they should be blessed. It seems to me that the two most important words in the first Corinthians text are God chose. God chose what is foolish. God chose what is weak. God chose what is low and despised. As we continue in this series, it's important in approaching each and every beatitude that we remember not to turn them into a list of things we would choose. They aren't good advice. They aren't timeless truths. They're not seven steps to get God's blessing or kingdom entrance requirements. 
Instead, we need to see the Beatitudes as an announcement of what God chooses. The Beatitudes are not a list of the heroes of the faith. It's more like a list of the zeros of the faith. You all know you wanted me to go there. (laughs) They're, They're not a list of the moral behaviors that define the spiritual elite. They're certainly not platitudes. They're paradoxes. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Really? Why? This is upside down. It's backwards. It's counterintuitive. It's paradox. Here's the thing. God loves paradox. Modern humans, not so much. We've been to school. We know how things work. And Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. On one hand, the Beatitudes sound so counterintuitive, yet on the other, they resonate so deeply that we get this sense that what he's saying here is that which is really real. He's saying and speaking to what is most true about about us. And so into a culture that honors the self-absorbed, the in-crowd, the winners, Jesus comes boldly offering good news to the empty, the grieving, and the small. Blessed are those who mourn. How lucky are the unlucky is Jesus' manifesto. If he were a political candidate unveiling a new platform, that would be it. And if we don't get this, then we miss Jesus in his own teaching. So let's pray for God's help this morning in seeing and hearing uh, Jesus clearly through this text. Will you pray with me? Our God, Father, Son, Spirit, we come into this gathering in various states of readiness to hear your kind of wisdom. So we pray humbly and yet boldly that you would open us up, that you would give us courage to hear what it is you're saying to us and how you're saying it. May we also have the courage to respond in your strength, for it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So, as we said, the Beatitudes are not instruction. They're not a command to be mournful, per se. But let me just say something to those of us who might think of ourselves as mourning avoiders. M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, right? Not mourning avoiders, right? So, mourning avoiders, those who are trying to get through life without having to cry. If that's you, then okay, But just know that Jesus has nothing to announce to you through this beatitude. That's just the way it is. As we said last week, the same thing applies to those who are rich in spirit. Those who would look down on people who aren't as spiritual as we are because they've made the same mistakes over and over again. What I want to do in this sermon is to try to unpack what Jesus is saying to those who do mourn. In what sense does God bless those who are mourning presently? who have mourned in the past and will mourn in the future. Also, how does God bless those willing to join in the work of mourning on behalf of others? So, blessed are those who mourn is not an announcement for people who have resolved to never shed tears. Make sense? I think it's pretty clear, but just wanted to say that. What does the text mean then by mourning? For one thing, mourning is not moping. There's a difference between mourning and complaining and wallowing. Some of you were at our uh, Ash Wednesday service a couple of weeks back. And at our Ash Wednesday service, there was an opportunity to receive ashes on your forehead. 
a sign to help us remember our own mortality, that from dust we've come, to dust we shall return. And I remember being a part of a morning service on Ash Wednesday a number of years back, where someone, I think, just raised the question afterwards, so are you going to keep the ashes on your forehead all day, or are you just going to go wash them off right away? And it was sort of almost like a dare, um, you know what I'm saying? And so in Matthew, just a page over, chapter 6, Some clear words about this. When you fast, verse 16, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, pour oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So it seems like making sure people see your Ash Wednesday ashes kind of misses the point. What Jesus seems clear about is that he's unimpressed by manipulation. Mourning is not licensed to make people feel sorry for you. It's not a performance. So what is it? The verb translated mourn is penthien. Penthien. It is one of the strongest words for grief in the, in the Greek language. And it carries this sense of piercing sorrow. The range of meaning for this word certainly would include grief over the loss of loved ones, but other uses in Scripture point beyond this. They point to things like our own sinful nature. Recall David's confession in Psalm 51, probably his best known, although there are others. Just a few verses from Psalm 51. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. It includes personal sin. It also includes other people's suffering and sins. Back in Exodus chapter 3, we read these words. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So, I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Don't miss the fact that in this text, God is the one doing the mourning. And notice what he does. God doesn't distance himself from it, He moves towards it. He doesn't say, well, too bad. What you put out is what you get back. Karma sucks, doesn't it? Doesn't say that. God doesn't look down on those in misery. He comes down so he can bring them up. When we suffer, God comes close. So who is included in those who mourn? At least these groups, the disenfranchised, the contrite, the bereaved. And mourning is, of of course, closely related to grief, which, according to one writer, can be defined this way. Grief is the experience we go through when something or someone is taken away from us. It is a sense of loss, although not necessarily the loss of something positive. And it is a loss that is personal and individual. What one person experiences as a loss will be quite different from what someone else does. And when we think of grief, the most common association is actual physical death. But there are many kinds of little deaths that cause us to experience grief, aren't there? I sit with people all the time who are undergoing losses or little deaths of various kinds. Many of you do too. Things like 
a job change or loss, a breakup, separation, or divorce, anxiety and depression, leaving home, growing up, slash adulting, graduation, infertility, surgery, hospitalization, leaving the hospital, losing a game, loss of alone time because hashtag parenting, moving, loss of faith, changing churches, anniversary, the birthday of a lost loved one, promotion, retirement. It's highly likely that at least, that each of us is dealing with at least something from this list or will be before long. In the last 24 hours, I've heard about one cancer diagnosis and another who lost a loved one because of it. That's just like in the last day. And we could certainly add to this list. Grief and loss touch all of us. No exceptions. So if grief and loss are so universal, why do we have such a hard time giving ourselves to the work of grief? To put it another way, why is mourning so hard? One reason, I think, is that we're deeply enculturated in an attitude of not wanting to mourn. In the face of suffering and grief, we have cultivated a culture of denial. There's many reasons for this. Maybe part of it is being a citizen of one of the best countries in the world. As the lists say, a country that is at or near the top of of those lists of best places to live. And so if you're in that country, then you can't afford to have sorrow or grief. And in Old Testament terms, by the way, this is a lot like how Babylon saw itself in the beginning. And of course, this is propaganda. It's not true. And yet, we perpetuate this idea of nothing bad can happen to us. But bad things do happen. There's no such thing as a sorrow-free place. We're simply unschooled in what to do when it hits us. It's like we live with this obligation not to suffer. And the church, sad to say, can be one of the worst perpetrators of this. So much of the church world has created this facade of happiness Like it's a spiritual duty to always be happy. How many of us have ever woken up on a Sunday morning and said to ourselves, I can't go today, I'm not happy enough? This is a uniquely modern thought. Can you imagine the earliest Christians saying something like that to each other? Paul, it's not feeling it today, can't go. And it's a burden we've placed on ourselves that we don't need. So think about it this way. What is the central symbol of our faith. There are two of them in the room, at least, and probably some around some of your necks. The cross, right? What is the cross? It's a symbol of death that has been transformed by resurrection. But death is not ignored. The cross is cherished by us because of who died on it, but he did die. And though death is real, death is not the end. So the thing we celebrate, the thing that we center our lives on is that the one who died on the cross went down into death, blew it up from within, and rose again to new life. Can I get an amen to that? The cross is a paradox. Death, not ignored, not denied, not avoided, but transformed into resurrection is a paradox, and God loves paradox. And it's the reality of the cross that enables us to do what Scripture teaches, to weep with those who weep, and to rejoice with those who rejoice. Isn't it time that the church stops insisting on rejoicing with those who weep? 
in his great mercy, God has so wired the human person that mourning, though inevitable and necessary, can be shared. It can be shared. If I can enter your sorrow, that means you don't have to endure it alone. Oh, that's good news. When I grieve with you, that means there's some of the work that you don't have to do. Hallelujah. Why else do we resist mourning? Why is grief so hard to open ourselves up to? Uh, Maybe it's because some of us fear loss of control, vulnerability, being exposed, or appearing weak. I love Richard Rohr's words here. He says, Tears seem ridiculous in a culture like ours, which is so focused on diversions and entertainment, and are especially a stumbling block to men. Crying will make us look vulnerable. So many men hold back tears. Is it any wonder men don't live as long as women on average? We must teach all young people how to cry. Now in my later years, I finally understand why Saints Francis and Claire cried so much and why the saints spoke of the gift of tears. At one time or another, most of us have experienced the effects of a good cry. One writer referred to tears as emotional perspiration. Emotional perspiration. And there's a reason tearjerker is a recognized movie genre, right? What happens when we cry? Read an article called Seven Good Reasons to Cry Your Eyes Out, an author called Therese Borchard. She talks about the ways crying heals us physiologically, psychologically, and spiritually. I'll just offer a few. Tears help us see, literally. They not only lubricate our eyeballs and eyelids, they also prevent dehydration of our mucous membranes. No lubrication, no eyesight. I like to think of this one metaphorically as well. Tears kill bacteria and remove toxins. So our tears operate like an antibacterial and antiviral agent, fighting off germs that we attract from shopping carts and elevators and all the places those nasty little guys make their homes and procreate. They also remove toxins from our body that build up courtesy of stress. Kind of like a natural therapy or massage session, but cheaper. Tears also help communication and foster community. You all know when we're responding to them appropriately, they engender deeper listening and deeper support, deeper connection. Tears also release feelings. We all know that one doesn't have to go through extreme trauma or depression in order to accumulate conflicts and and resentments. Sometimes they gather inside the limbic system of the brain and in certain corners of the heart, and so crying can be cathartic. As Borchard's article put it, it lets the devils out before they wreak all kinds of havoc with the nervous and cardiovascular systems. Emotional perspiration. One more reason I think that we resist opening ourselves up to mourning is that it's really inconvenient. It takes a lot of time and energy that we don't think is worth spending. So we do whatever we can to avoid it. I've got a friend named Lawrence who works as a chaplain at St. Paul's Hospital. And this is a remarkably caring, compassionate guy, just the kind of person you want as a chaplain. And he told me once about a particularly crazy day he'd had. They'd had a sudden trauma death. An elderly Korean man was visiting Vancouver as a tourist, and he died during an angiogram. And in the wake of this, 
four hours of his day were consumed with that situation alone, communicating with the family members who didn't speak much English, offering them support, being present to them as the medical team shared the tragic news. We all know something about the kind of physical and emotional toll grief takes on us and the time it takes to walk through it. Grief is really inefficient. Sometimes it seems a whole lot easier to just try and sidestep it entirely. So mourning is hard for at least these reasons. It goes against the grain of culture, which is largely one of denial, even and sometimes especially in the church. It's hard because we fear the loss of control that vulnerability demands and requires. We don't like to appear weak. They seem ridiculous. Tears seem ridiculous. It's inconvenient. It's tiresome. It's hard work, and it takes way too long. Mourning is hard for all these reasons and more, but what if it's worth it? What if it's worth it? Anne Lamott said, my understanding of incarnation is that we are not served by getting away from the grubbiness of suffering. Sometimes we feel that we are barely pulling ourselves forward through a tight tunnel on badly scraped up elbows, but we do come out on the other side, exhausted and changed, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So to those who are in that state, Jesus says, you're blessed. Really? Why? Because something is going to happen. Blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. The verb comfort is parakaleo. It's a rich word. It essentially means to exhort, to encourage, to embolden, It's used of soldiers cheering each other on, which is the original meaning of the English word comfort. So we break it apart. Comfort is come, it's with, forts, which is strength. And so comfort is to strengthen by being with. To strengthen by being with. I love this paraphrase by Brian Zond of this verse. Blessed are the depressed who mourn and grieve for they create space to encounter comfort from another. That's pretty spot on. Jesus is saying that as we dare to open ourselves up to pain and grief, we find ourselves weirdly strengthened. How? Why? Well, check this out. From the verb parakaleo, we get the noun paraclete. Is this ringing any bells? This is the word Jesus uses for the Holy Spirit. The paraclete, the the personal embodiment of the kingdom Jesus is announcing is especially present to those who are mourning. How? Well, the Spirit comes alongside those who mourn and comforts them. Dale Bruner said, On Jesus' authority, in deep sadness, human beings are in God's hands more than at any other time. What's this look like? Well, just as the experience of grief differs from person to person, so comfort can also look different. And it may not be what we expect. It's not one size fits all. Notice Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who mourn, for that which they've lost shall be made up to them. He doesn't promise a blessing that manifests itself in loss being repaid by some equally measured gain. What he does offer is relationship, presence, solidarity. And just as he invites us to join in the work of mourning, he also invites us to participate in the work of comforting, both receiving and giving it. 
Well, something I haven't done in a sermon in a long time, some might say too long, right? Steph Ratcliffe is reference Lord of the Rings. So um, in Fellowship of the Ring, after Gandalf has battled the Balrog, and we, spoiler alert, think that's the end of Gandalf, they emerge from the deep, dark mines of Moria and out onto the mountainside. Do you remember this scene? Under the open sky, the hobbits are devastated. They fall to their knees with tears of grief, holding one another, trying to offer comfort, even in their own suffering. And Aragorn says, Legolas, Gimli, get them up. And then does anyone do a good Boromir? Anyone on that? I didn't practice that much, but then Boromir says, give them a moment for pity's sake. There are a number of beautiful, grace-oriented impulses at work here in the comforting of friends, both physical and emotional, in the words of encouragement, not to deny pain, but neither to wallow in despair, not to rush or sidestep the work of mourning, but to keep moving, to keep living. There's a grace-oriented impulse in words that defends one's right to grieve that which has been lost, and not only to move on with life, but to actively give other people permission to open themselves up to grief as well. What if one of the invitations Jesus is offering in this beatitude is to take up lament as a spiritual practice? We are called to the work of praise and adoration, yes, but also lamentation. The book of Psalms is full of lament. I read about a pastor who used to say, how do I feel today? I think I'll find a psalm to fit that mood. He stopped doing that when he realized that the point of the psalms is not to give us a way to express how we feel, but rather that the purpose of the psalms is to teach us to feel what they express. Whatever that happens to be across the spectrum of human emotion. So even on my happiest day, there are things to grieve. And even on my saddest day, there are things to celebrate. The Psalms invite us to this paradoxical way of being in the world. They are a crucial piece in our spiritual formation. They invite us to move on from a state of being comfortably numb, Pink Floyd reference, something I've never done in a sermon till now, (laughs) in order to engage in the work of grief. Now you might say, I don't have anything to grieve over. Look around. It won't take long. A number of years ago, Terry and I got to be uh, in Germany, and as part of our holiday, we visited Dachau, the concentration camp. And in that moment, I've shared this story before, but I'll never forget it. Tourists are milling about in a kind of visitor center and looking at the possible options of what they could do for the day. And so overheard someone noticing that there was a documentary film that was going to be shown at a certain time. And and the person asked the guide there, so is is the film good? Mm." And so I overheard that and Terry and I were just like, oh, what's going to happen here? And the tour guide took the high road. And she said, it may not be good, but it's important. It may not be good, but it's important. I encourage you, pray the Psalms and look around as you do. If you're not one praying, how long, O Lord, someone close to you is. Our neighbors in the downtown east side are saying that. How can we join and come alongside? How can we be parakaleo to others who are experiencing that?
Let the laments give shape to your prayers. Now, laments aren't, of course, only found in the book of Psalms. There's actually a book in the Old Testament called Lamentations. Heard of this? Probably read it this morning. I'm not sure. Now, chronologically, what's interesting is that Lamentations fits between Isaiah 39 and 40. Isaiah 39 ends with the prophecy of God's people being carried off to exile into Babylon. There's words like, nothing will be left. Like, this is complete, utter annihilation and complete exile. Then Lamentations fits there. Five chapters of pain. And then Isaiah 40, with its opening refrain, comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. And it rings so loudly because the work of grief, the work of mourning has prepared the people to hear the word of comfort. When the work of mourning has been entered into intentionally, it readies us to receive the prophetic word of comfort. And we're in Lent right now, as you know, and we need Lent because we can't just live in Easter Sunday. And the way we access Easter is through Good Friday, through Holy Saturday. The gospel we've received is not a principle, it's a story. And if you have a story, you have to have a plot, right? And that plot, stated simply, is death, burial, resurrection. With Jesus emerging from the tomb on the third day and saying, peace be with you. But we have to get to it honestly. We get to Easter not by avoiding the agony of Good Fridays and the abandonment of Holy Saturdays when we can effectively say God is dead, but by facing them in the strength of the Comforter. This requires that we know how to mourn. This second beatitude clearly foreshadows the cross. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, blessed are those who stick with me through Good Friday and Holy Saturday, for they shall receive the comfort of Resurrection Sunday. That's what Lent's all about. 40 days prior to Easter, not counting the Sundays, because we're on the journey with Jesus. That's how we're describing it with our children as well. And as the closer you get to the cross, the mood changes. We feel his sorrow, yes, we feel his pain, so we fast. We may choose to give up something, we may choose to take on something, but every Sunday is a day of celebration around the world. We break fast on Sundays. So even if you're giving up chocolate, you still get the green and blacks organic on a Sunday. I want to offer a Lucy Shaw poem as we close today and come to the table and move to a place of responding. It's a beautiful poem, and I'll put an image up by Edward Munch called Melancholy. just invite you to hear this, and I'll offer a prayer and invite us to come to the table. It's called Conversion. He was a born loser, accident-prone too, Never won the lottery, married a girl who couldn't cook, broke his leg the day before the wedding and forgot the ring. He was the kind who ended up behind a post in almost any auditorium. Planes he was booked to fly on were delayed by engine trouble with sickening regularity. His holidays at the beach were almost always ruined by rain. All his apples turned out wormy. His letters came back, marked, moved, left no address. 
And it was his car that was cited for speeding from among a flock of others going 60 in a 55-mile zone. So it was a real shocker when he found himself elected, chosen by grace for salvation, felt the exhilaration of an undeserved and wholly unexpected joy, and tasted for the first time the glory of being on the winning side. Let's pray. God of all comfort, this morning I ask that instead of trying to figure out why we suffer, may we look at the cross and say thank you that you suffer with us, that you didn't leave us to suffer alone. And that because you suffer with us, somehow everything is going to be all right. May we have courage and faith, even if we are in the agony of Good Friday or the abandonment of Holy Saturday, to believe that Sunday is coming. For those who are in mourning right now, would you bring comfort quickly? For those asking how long, not long, please. For those not presently mourning or who struggle to enter the work of grief, God, we ask, don't let us leave those who suffer to do so alone. To all of us, I say, may God's comfort be yours. May your burden be eased. May your pain be soothed. May your sorrow be lessened. We pray in the strong, capable, comforting name of Jesus the Christ.